Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And by very popular demand, we're talking about librarians, not just in this podcast, but also in the next, because there's so much to talk about. There is so much to talk about, and you are just going to listen to me over the course of two episodes, try not to say librarians. And I'm not teasing anyone. I'm not making fun of speech impediments. I'm literally concerned about my lazy mouth. Well, and it didn't help that the email I sent Caroline with all of my uh, library sources that I was reading was subject lined library sources. So now library is in my head. Yeah, well, library sounds like some kind of uh, refreshing tonic. Ooh, a library juice. I could really drink. go for a library right now. <laughs> what what flavor would a library be? Um, something sour, I bet. Like lime and blackberry. Ooh, hello. Let's make that happen. Can that be a cocktail? Throw some gin in there. I'm sure it could. But um, but about specific actual human librarians. True. Yes. Um. We we seriously did receive so many emphatic requests for this episode. People out there who uh, work with books, work around books, they do tend to call themselves librarians. Um, and yeah, we we couldn't not listen to you guys. Your, your request, we had to answer. Well, because we mentioned offhandedly in an episode, I think it was our episode about Hillary Clinton's early life. That we should revisit librarians because there is a librarian themed episode of Stuff Mom Never Told You from The Vault. I think it came out in 2010. Mm -hmm. Um, So we will be revisiting a little bit of that. But I have a feeling a lot of listeners either haven't heard that episode or it's probably been a while since you have heard that episode. Yeah, because, I mean, children born that year are like six now. I know. So so six-year-olds, this is for you. Yeah, this goes out to you. And also all the librarians out there. Um, if, by the way, the two bossy dames who are fantastic librarians who uh, send out a weekly newsletter that you should absolutely subscribe to, if they're listening, because I think they might know who we are, hello, I thought about you a lot during this episode. <laughs> Just pondered them. I'm picturing you like sitting in your window, looking out at the moon. Because they're rad librarians. I mean, and in, in, in college, Caroline, I really wanted to work at our college library. Why? So as part of my student aid, I had an on-campus job and you could check off the ones that you wanted. And the library was where all the cool kids worked. Ah. Like a lot of townies <laughs> worked at the library and it just kind of sounded cool. Like, oh, I just came from my shift at the library and they always had cool glasses and cool tattoos. And instead I ended up working at the print shop, which had its own, you know, Benefits, hashtag free copies, but uh, <laughs> but still, it was it was my dream to be the the college librarian. Well, it's funny that you mentioned like the cool kids and the cool glasses and the tattoos and everything because that is sort of a latter day librarian stereotype. You know, we over the course of these two episodes, we will discuss stereotypes a bit, but. Um, you know, we've always had the image of the old spinster woman shushing children, but 
I feel like more recently, the new stereotype that's been introduced is like, it is a cool lady job. And here I am, the alternative librarian with the tattoos and glasses. Yeah, and she has really cool glasses, some great tattoos. She wears mod cloth dresses, has fantastic vintage decor in her home and a record collection and essentially is uh, just has really great uh, aesthetic taste and also so many cultural references because she's read so much cultural and literary references. She sounds like somebody I'd want to hang out with. She's kind of my ideal woman. I think (laughs) is what I'm realizing right now. (laughs) Sounds like you still want to go work in a library. A little bit. Yeah. I've also been thinking about librarians a bit though, Caroline, because I've been watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer for the first time. Thank you, Netflix. Mm. And Giles, the watcher Mm -hmm. is a librarian and he fits the stereotype of your of yeah. the he's not a curmudgeon, but he's a little bit fusty. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it is interesting to see. And I mean, it makes total sense. It's pretty self-explanatory. It's interesting to see the evolution of the librarian stereotype and how it exactly matches the trends that we see in librarianing. Librarianship? Yeah. Oh, sure. That'll work as well. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and in this episode, we're going to talk about how librarianship used to be a dude's job and how a guy named Melville Dewey came along and changed all of that. And he also is the one who created the Dewey Decimal System. And while he often gets praised for that, I mean, he's kind of considered this hero of librarianship. We have uh, we have darker tales to tell about Dewey. Yeah, sounds like a he's a real joy. But the whole transition of librarianship from being a man's job to a woman's job, which it still very much is today, is a really intriguing exploration of how masculinity, ideal masculinity, changed in turn-of-the-century America. Yes, this is such a great episode to encompass all of the themes that Sminty just loves. Like what? So we've got women in the workplace. Yes. But we've also got the professionalization issue surrounding gender. So very professional when it comes to men, but less professional when it comes to women and wages. Um, we've also got issues of the spinster and marriage and relationships and who is allowed to be employed, both like, you know, legally and just socially, what is socially accepted. Um, and uh, just a boatload of stereotypes. Yeah. Victorian womanhood, gender norms. These two episodes, folks have it all. So in this episode, we're going to be focusing on men in librarianship. And then in our next episode, we're going to be talking about rad lady librarians Mm -hmm. and how it became feminized. Um, And we should say that it is still very much a feminized occupation. So according to stats from the American Library Association, as of 2010, Women made up 82.8% of all librarians and 81% of all master's in library science students. Yeah, but it's not as diverse a field as ideally it would be. 
Women of color actually comprise less than 16% of all librarians. And so this is another very sminty-esque tidbit. I uh, love all the sminty-esque tidbits. I know. I, do you remember tidbits? They were little cheese snacks. I don't think they make them anymore, but I ate them so often as a child. I was about to say that sminty-esque tidbits sounds like a, like a British cookie. So we've got the library drink. Library drink. Library. To yes. eat with our sminty-esque tidbits. Oh, man. I'm sorry. I will get back to the topic at hand. But basically... What I'm getting at is that like teaching, and we discussed this in our episode on teachers, if you want to go back and check that out, men are disproportionately represented at the top higher ranks of librarianship and library societies. So men make up 40 percent of all university library directors, and they earn a median $111,000. And it's basically always been this way, even when the profession became incredibly feminized and the ranks were overwhelmingly filled by women. Men were still at the higher ranks of running the libraries because, and the bigger libraries, too, because of how Dewey and his male cohorts professionalized librarianship. Mm-hmm. I mean, they essentially built this structure so that men would stay at the top. Yeah. Yeah, we've got a quote about that later in the episode. Yeah. Um, and really quickly, speaking to the issue of diversity in librarianship, we are going to talk about women of color and librarianship and also libraries during the civil rights movement in our next episode. So stay tuned. Stay tuned because real rad stuff to come. <laughs> but first, let's talk about the original librarians. Mm-hmm. Who were fellas. They were well-to-do, educated guys. That's right. Uh, The original librarian, contrary to popular belief, was not the ghost from Ghostbusters. Oh. Remember? I've never seen all of Ghostbusters. It's at the very beginning? Question mark up speak? Well. They go, uh, they go to the basement and she makes the, the, Dewey Decimal cards fly everywhere. Oh, uh, yes. Okay. She's probably so pissed about Dewey being a jerk. Anywho. Yeah. So the original librarians were dudes. They were curmudgeons. They were, yes. they were curmudgeonly as we have established. Um, there's a great quote, uh, from an article about librarian stereotypes and the development of them, uh, in American Libraries magazine, which I wouldn't mind subscribing to, which describes these, uh, the original librarian image as fusty white male curmudgeons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's not even us slurring these, these male librarians. So it sort of is Giles from, from Buffy. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, I mean, cardigans. I don't think they, they didn't wear cardigans yeah. back then, but you know, basically. Um, so let's travel back in time, though, to this male-dominated library era. And this takes us back to the period before the Civil War. Uh, we're going to specifically visit Peterborough, New Hampshire in 1833, uh, which is where we get the first free public tax-supported library. And it was started by a man named Abel Abbott. And I seriously, like, I couldn't get my internet to work before I came into the studio, which is enraging. But I'm seriously wondering if I'm related to him because all of my people, when they first came to this country, uh, were in Vermont and New Hampshire. And I have some Abbots in my family tree. You could be the descendant of Ol' Abel Abbott, which, by the way, that's a great name. Ol' Abel Abbott. Ol' Abel Abbott. Well, when he arrived in Peterborough, 
he was on this mission to uh, of uplift, essentially mm-hmm. saying like, you know what, we should have a place with books where everyone can come in and check them out and read them if they want so that we can all become more virtuous and yes. uh, more virtuous Republican citizens. Um, and we should note that parochial libraries were established during colonial America, but this is the big transition to people actually paying to support libraries, which the small town of Peterborough uh, voted on in a town meeting. They were like, Abel Abbott, that's a terrific idea. <laughs> we vote yay. We love places with books. Yes. <laughs> and then there was like one naysayer in the corner who was like, nay. <laughs> and all Susan. Sue's. All Sue's then got out of town. Sue's. Um, but this makes sense that this was happening in America at this time. So it was, this was, uh, the Peterborough Library opened in 1833. And, uh, America was coming down with reform fever. Oh yeah. This was the beginning of the reform era. So over the next few decades, you're going to have the rise of the temperance movement, labor reform, common schools, which you can learn more about if you go back and listen to our episode on teaching. They were also uh, advocating for prison reform, specifically not throwing debtors in prison. Uh, the suffrage movement was coming about, abolition. This was even when we get the first vegetarian society. Yeah, and don't we have an episode? We have an episode on vegetarianism. Yes, we do. It's easy. To, our catalog is... Large. It's bursting. Yeah, I feel like this This is really, uh, <laughs> everything's really coming together in this I know. library episode. We've been getting so many emails lately, which makes makes me very happy, from new listeners. And I love being able to respond in the affirmative that we do have episodes in our back catalog that they are requesting. It's it's very fun, and I enjoy, I enjoy conversing with these new listeners. We almost need a Dewey Decimal System for our 700-episode-plus library, although, of course... We would not call it the Dewey Decimal System for reasons listeners will learn in just a little bit. Yeah. People are like, what is the deal with Dewey? <laughs> so much Dewey hostility. These women are so aggressive. <laughs> um, yeah. So as you might imagine, because, you know, Kristen and I have definitely talked about this reform era and the progressive era on the podcast before, but... There were a lot of ideas around virtue, people wanting to improve themselves, help lift others so that they could improve themselves. And free public libraries were part of that. They were considered a sort of democratic gateway for citizens to be able to better themselves and thus the country. And then you have the issue of common schools popping up. These were kind of the predecessors to public schools happening around the same time, but they really couldn't open these schools fast enough. So libraries also became supplementary to public school education because another background idea of all of this and the whole push for virtue was concerns that if they didn't educate this younger generation of newly American citizens in the ways of, you know, religion and Republican ideals, then you might, oh, I don't know, have something like a civil war that would happen, even though even though we got libraries, unfortunately, they could not prevent a civil war. Well, I mean, if but if you look at it from the other direction, it makes sense, because if libraries are part of a reform attitude and abolition is part of that and educating people in the ways of, you know, not being a jerk 
is all wrapped up in that, then fighting to end slavery and public libraries seem to go hand in hand. Very true. I like that glass half full perspective. Thank you. Now, Bostonians listening right now might be uh, wondering why we have not mentioned their library, because Boston does have the claim to fame of opening the nation's first large public library in 1852. And I would like to note that Boston, the same year, hired a female clerk. Oh, how fancy. So good on you, Boston. Good on you. But the, uh, you know, the, the original is in tiny Peterborough. Yeah, I'm sure I would love to go there. You, you know what, Caroline? I think you can. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. I'll have to look into this. this you just rent a, uh, a horse and carriage from, uh, Uber. Oh, yeah. And clippity clop Cu- of the East Coast. Cuber. Cuber. Carriage Uber. Um, or Huber for, for horses. <laughs> Huber, uh, Huber, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. Um, so when these first libraries were being established, we've already said that it was men running the show, running the, the, running bo- the books, running the books. Um, but it was associated definitely with, uh, a higher class element of men working as librarians, but it was also associated with this idea that you were a librarian because you had failed at something else. Perhaps you had received a great education, but you were not able to become a lawyer or a doctor. So that's where we get the stereotype of the male librarian who can't do so he libraries. Yeah, because it wasn't considered that much of an actual profession because, oh, you're just babysitting books. What are you? I mean, it sounds great to me. I know, right? (laughs) Pushing a cart, listening to music. I'm telling you. God, if I had time to read. (laughs) But uh, in this time, the masculine elite status was achieved through breeding, education and gentility. Like hard work was not the name of the game. So a leisurely occupation, consider it leisurely in quotes, occupation like librarianship was something that would have fit into that ideal because there was also this paternalistic mission of educating the poor through, uh, you know, all of these books that you would essentially be babysitting for them to come in and check out and, and read. Mm, reading. Um, so earlier, you know, Kristen mentioned this, this shifting, uh, idea of masculinity and what the ideal masculinity was. And this happens after the Civil War. So rather than the ideal man being this genteel elite who sits at home, I don't know, smoking a bubble pipe. He probably calls up a Huber every now and then. Yeah. To take a leisurely ride. He probably owns Huber. Oh, well, his father's father did. (laughs) You know. When he first came to this country. Yes. And received a land grant. Um, but so that's out. We, we're class warriors now. We don't care so much about being those genteel men wearing tights. And instead, we get the ideal of the capitalistic, self-made man. You know, we're leaving the babysitting and uh, preservation of books and culture to the women folk. Because this is also the era of separate spheres. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the, the Victorian era is also coming in full steam. And this shift in 
masculinity norms and the separation of those spheres really positioned librarianship societally to become a female-dominated occupation. But at the same time, it also fostered a cultural and downright sexist reluctance to consider it a bona fide profession, like being a doctor or a lawyer, for instance, because it was still associated with gentility. So that left the male librarians of the day in a little bit of a pickle because they're like, okay, we we realize that this is rapidly becoming women's work, but we want to be respected for this. So, um... (laughs) We're going to professionalize it. (laughs) Yeah, and this is where Dewey finally comes in. Oh, Melville Dewey. Melville Dewey, which is a really adorable name. It's a shame it's attached to such a jerk. Abel Abbott, Melville Dewey. There are some good names in this episode. They all sound like cartoon characters. They do. Um, But yeah, so Melville Dewey and his uh, book-loving contemporaries, male book-loving contemporaries, I should say, wanted and therefore worked to professionalize the field. They were like, we don't want any of this loosey-goosey librarianing. Yeah, I mean, and and Dewey was also motivated by that shift into, you know, the, the masculine ideal of the self-made man. So he was like, you know what, I'm going to take advantage of this passion I have for librarianship and this, you know, mission to build these communities. Um, but at the same time, I need respect. So we're going to institute hierarchical organizing and standardizing of systems because at the time you could have a library in Peterborough, New Hampshire, which also doubles as the general store and the post office. How wonderful. I know, right? A real one-stop shop. Dudes love a hierarchy. (laughs) It's true. But you have something like that, which might be a little loosier, goosier, (laughs) and then a Boston Public Library, which is obviously much larger and are probably running on different kinds of structures. Mm -hmm. So Dewey's million dollar idea, although I don't think he ever made a million (laughs) dollars off of it, was to basically institutionalize libraries. Yes, that's right. And we start to see the official associations and organizations popping up. In 1876, we get the founding of the American Library Association. So we do have Dewey to thank for that. And he was member number one because, of of course, he was. Of course he was. Um, He's like that. He's like the the commenters on YouTube videos (laughs) first. Yeah, really adding to the dialogue. Oh, yes. Uh, and in 1887, Columbia College establishes its School of Library Economy. So uh, schools are being established. The next stop on this journey is surely uh, the continuing trajectory of librarianship becoming even more professionalized. Right. But, but no, no, oh. because the Columbia College was essentially like going to a technical school because that's what you would be learning. It would be getting more of an associate's degree rather than a full bachelor degree, partially because it was rapidly becoming so feminized mm. because, you know, libraries, even from the, the very beginning, as is the case today, did not tend to have huge budgets. They were supported by taxes and also trustees. And they were like, you know what? We need a lot of cheap labor, similar as was happening in public schools at the time. Like, okay, we need uh, teachers and librarians. 
who is really cheap and does not have a lot of job opportunities. Oh, right. Women. Women were a cost saving measure in the same way that it's like, let's use the cheaper, you know, desks or let's buy robots. (sighs) I don't know if those are cheaper. <laughs> I don't know how much a robot's going for these days. <laughs> Probably more than I can afford. Um, but we are about, we're on now the precipice of the Dewey period. And we're going to introduce you more to Dewey when we come right back from a quick break. Caroline, we've got some big news for the small screen. On July 13th, Mr. Robot is coming back to USA Network for its second season. That's right. It's been hailed by Rolling Stone as the number one show of 2015 and named Best Drama by the Golden Globe and Critics' Choice Awards. Mr. Robot follows a cybersecurity engineer who's recruited by the mysterious leader of an underground group determined to bring down the world's largest corporation. But when their hack is a success, the consequences are far greater than they imagined. Following the events of F Society's 5-9 hack on multinational company Evil Corp, the second season will explore the consequences of that attack, as well as the illusion of control. Starring Rami Malek and Christian Slater, Mr. Robot returns Wednesday, July 13th at 10, 9 central, only on USA Network. So, if you're looking for something to binge on this summer... Head on over to USA Network on July 13th and tune in to Mr. Robot. So let's talk a bit more about Melville Dewey and the whole Dewey period, which is uh, the period of librarianship from around 1887 to 1923. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, Dewey, yes, was kind of the father of librarianship, but he was uh, an intense man. <laughs> yeah, that's. I feel like that's very generous. Yes, that is. So can, please tell our listeners more about just like the type of dude that Dewey was. Yeah, dude we. Dude we. I'm, I'm stop trying to make fetch happen, Caroline. Um, well, yeah, he was intense. He, for one, he, he absolutely hated the idea of wasted time. He advocated for us all, all of us Americans, to not only adopt the metric system, which isn't crazy yeah, that's to pretty say. Smart. That's pretty smart. Um, but he also advocated for shortening words and everyone using um, uh, shorthand. So was Dewey kind of ahead of his time for tech speak? Yeah. Oh, he, yeah. Was he totes, totes ahead of his time? He was totes ahead of his time. Um, but part of that uh, tendency, I guess, is that he literally had his wife record how each minute of her day was spent because he wanted to be sure that his spouse was not, you know, twiddling her thumbs during the day. Aren't there some contemporary scholars who suggest that Dewey probably had some type of OCD? Yeah. So we read this fascinating uh, article uh, giving a a glimpse into Dewey's background. And the authors write that he very likely had legit obsessive compulsive personality disorder, which briefly let's distinguish that from OCD. So OCD is obviously when you have obsessive and compulsive tendencies, but they are unwelcome. You have intrusive thoughts and intrusive compulsions, and you realize it's terrible and you hate it, but you're powerless over it. Whereas OC 
PD, those compulsions and obsessions energize you. So in this article, he's compared to like an earlier Steve Jobs and his very likely OCPD is also associated with his extremely turbulent and questionable interpersonal relationships, which, as we are about to dive into, were largely with women. Yeah, I mean, and and it sounds like from everything that we've read about Dewey that his mind just never stopped. Because right. in addition to his librarianship passion, he was also an innovator generally. He was always kind of trying to start up little entrepreneurial side hustles that would never really take off. Um And when he really dove into librarianship, on the one hand, he sounds really progressive at Mm -hmm. first because in 1883, he hired six Wellesley grads to help him organize the Columbia University Library. And of course, Wellesley is a women's college and the Columbia University staff were scandalized at the idea of this guy hiring Women. Yeah, th- those vaginas were way too close. Yeah. Get those vaginas out of here. Well, I mean, and, and how incompetent they must be, and how could you be in such close quarters with them? And Dewey, you know, is kind of championing them, being like, no, women, women have brains and they're pretty good at using them. So point for Dewey. That's all he, that's really the only point I can give him though. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like this is echoes of our uh, look into J. Marion Sims, where it's like, oh, God, you contributed so much, but you were also the worst. The, uh, our, our father of gynecology, as he's called. Yeah. So four years later, in 1887, Dewey insists that women be admitted to Columbia's newly established library school. And again, the trustees freak out. Oh, my God, we're going to have all these hysterical women around us working with books. This is crazy. And and that's actually a little bit ironic for, like, people who are freaking out to worry about hysterical women. Right. And also by this time, I mean, there were a lot of women working as clerks and assistants in librarians. But, of course, Columbia University at the time was exclusively male. Yeah, and most of those women were able to keep their uteruses from floating away. So Well, they probably had to kind of, you know, tighten their corsets, hold it in. Well, they got, you know, when you get the balloon at the grocery store and they give you the little plastic disc to weight it down? Yes. I think that's what they were doing. Oh, they had weighted corsets. Okay, gotcha. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, Dewey, to his credit, was like, okay, listen, these trustees are not going to officially let these women in. So... (laughs) From what it sounded like, he kind of claimed a little space. Was um, it like a closet? <laughs> yeah. Basically, he had a shed. He found a shed <laughs> on the Columbia University campus and was like, ladies, come on. Just come into the shed. Ladies, ladies, ladies. That that doesn't sound shady at all. I know. Yeah. Or Dewey, shady. Dewey's shady shed. Um, Love it. But he uh, was... Training these women under the radar, essentially, until finally everything came to a head. And Columbia was like, listen, this is not OK. You are have to stop. Like, you have to we stop. Are, you got to get out of this we shed. We hate women and we hate that you're in this shed with them. Uh, so Dewey resigns in a huff, which, again, like, good on Dewey. OK, he like stuck by his guns. And in 1889, he's like, peace out, Columbia. And he transfers the technical school to the New York State Library. And as we'll talk about more in the next episode, he did train during this period some superstar 
students who became like pioneers in libraries, who created some of the the staples of libraries that we still use today. Well, sure. I mean, like you said, Kristen, he he was absolutely an innovator and he did believe in women's abilities to do this work. And he also, man or woman, had incredibly high expectations of the people who surrounded him. And so if you were a like-minded person who also wanted to have a job, work outside the home, wanted to work around books all day, uh, wanted to push those carts, um, and wanted to learn from someone brilliant, then it makes sense that some pretty brilliant women would come out from under his tutelage uh, as well. It makes sense. But a lot of not so great things came out of his working with so many women, too. Yeah, there um, on the one hand, he really got along better with women than he did. Oh, yeah. With men. He was well, he was surrounded almost entirely by women. He almost refused to associate with other men. <laughs> um, and in a way, he's kind of the Florence Nightingale of <laughs> librarians because That's so weird. Well, because Florence Nightingale stepped in with nursing and was like, dudes, get out of here. Women are better suited for this, like temperamentally. Women are suited better to this job. They're nurturing and tender. And men, you just you you can't you don't have any bedside manners. So get out of here. And in the same way, Dewey thought that women were even better suited than men for these technical jobs, more of the assistantships and doing all of the organizing rather than the administrating and the thing is, when he was, you know, running his library school, he had some peculiar um, application requirements for his female students, including um, their height, weight, hair color, eye color, and a photo, which I have a feeling that, like, in 1889, 1890, getting a photo of yourself <laughs> seems like it would be kind of hard. Right? You could, like, snap a selfie. Um But in his words, he wanted to know that they would be attractive enough because, quote, you can't polish a pumpkin. Like uh, What that has to do with organizing books and classifying them, I don't know. But he didn't want any pumpkins, essentially. Uh, Yeah. And one of these articles that we read in the Library Association magazine by Joshua Kendall euphemistically referred to Dewey as a, quote, serial hugger and kisser and a literary Lothario with quirks. Yes. Seriously? Quirks? I mean, that makes it sound like your dad's or your grandfather's like creepy friend who, you know, like we've all I feel like we've all known that. Guy. We've all met Creepy Jim. Like why? Yeah. Creepy Jim Batman. Why are you hugging me? Why are you? I don't want the sloppy kiss on the cheek. Like this is gross. It makes him sound like a harmless duttering. Is that a word? Old fool who like, I don't know what's what's bad and good. I'm going to hug you. Oh, but he did. He absolutely did. Getting, you know, all of those heights, weights. And um, as Joshua Kendall emphasized, not their bust size. He was like, there, there is a myth that uh, that Dewey wanted to know their bust size. That's that's not true. No, because he had the picture yeah. with which to judge. Exactly. And. This whole uh, sexual harasser side of Dewey is something that has only come to light in more recent decades because earlier biographies of him, of course, didn't really talk about it. They were like, um, decimal system. He was really <laughs> smart and he had uh, quirks. 
But he, I, I mean, he essentially sexually harassed many of his students. He yeah. had two assistants that lived with him and his wife in Albany, New York, both of whom were repeatedly harassed. And Joshua Kendall, I have a little bone to pick with Joshua Kendall and the way he wrote this uh, Dewey profile in the ALA magazine because he says, yes, there are records of him uh, having unwanted contact with his assistants, but they never reported it to authorities. I was like, whoa. Okay, well, the term sexual harassment didn't exist for another century, Mr. Kendall. But even though that term didn't exist, there came a point it was so egregious that he became known as essentially a sexual harasser, however you would have called it at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, And apparently things peaked and went public in a, a library association meeting conference in Alaska, which that seems like a pretty exotic trip to take, um, where he made four librarians, female librarians at the time, feel incredibly uncomfortable. And since they were already in the profession, they weren't his assistants under his tutelage. They were like, whoa, okay, uh, there's a problem here, and it is your hands on my body without my consent. <laughs> ah, yeah. Well, I mean, no, they didn't have the words sexual harassment to use, but you did have Tessa Kelso, who was the Los Angeles Public Library Director, who said, For many years, women librarians have been the special prey of Mr. Dewey in a series of outrages upon decency. In other words, he is a sexual harassing creep. Well, and Mary Wright Plummer, who was one of his original students, who we'll talk more about in our next episode, would eventually become uh, the president of the American Library Association in 1914. And once she got in that role, she refused to meet with Dewey. Yeah, but not only for her sake, but I got the impression reading the article that it was also in solidarity with other women who had dealt with his crap. Yeah. That, like, I promise I won't meet with this guy. Like, I don't want to talk to him, and I know y'all don't want to be around him either. But as all of this was going on in the background and sometimes in the foreground, the library education that he and um, other male counterparts were architecting at this time was really designed for essentially training, yes, a lot of women. They were welcoming women into the fold, but it, it was training them for Lower-level positions of being clerks, assistants, maybe the heads of smaller libraries, to the point that publicly librarianship was just considered this, you know, kind of throwaway job for women. Mm -hmm. They didn't get paid really anything at all. It didn't have a reputation of being super respectable um, because you couldn't go very far in it. So... The American Library Association was like, okay, we need to kind of burnish our image. So they said, you know what? High-level librarianship, being like a capital L librarian, like a Dewey, that is something that you were born with. That's such crap. I know when I read that, I couldn't believe it because how can you, whether it's 1870, 1970, or 2070, like seriously, how can you read that and believe it? But librarianship, no, I, I just can't like, but that also, but that also speaks to the paternalism of the, uh, 
occupation at the time, too, because they really did think they I mean, they kind of had a little bit of a, a Christ complex about it. Sure. Well, and I mean, who it's not like they were saying uh, you're born with it, whether you're a man or a woman. Right. And whether it's Maybelline. You are born with it because you're a man. Yeah. And and that's something that the author of a paper we were reading on the feminization of librarianship <laughs> pointed out, um, sort of an outrage at this idea, the suggestion that uh, being a librarian was something that you would be born with because, as she wrote, because it also required being born with a penis. Yeah. So. Yeah. Although maybe you come out of the womb with a little, little book in your hand. <laughs> Well, then, yeah, maybe you are born to be a librarian. <laughs> maybe so. Um, but with this hierarchy that they were establishing, you have sort of a pyramid structure with the much higher paid administrators, usually men at the top, in place to kind of tamp down on individuals being able to rise up through the ranks. So unlike university faculty at the time, which would have been mostly men, if you were a professor, mm-hmm. you could make a name for yourself as a professor and would probably be better known than, say, the administrator of that university. Mm-hmm. But with librarianship and same thing going on with the development of uh, public school teaching and the feminization of that, you have these strict standards put in place to essentially just like level the playing field. So you kind of have to stay in these little boxes. Yeah. And it's really hard to break through the ranks. You kind of have to go around being a clerk or assistant and jump right into administration. But they weren't training them in the library schools because, again, they thought that it was something at that time that you would be born with. Right. Slash penis. And I mean, obviously, in, in the next episode, we're going to talk more about women and feminization specifically. But there was one source that we read that cited a male librarian, contemporary male librarian, who was saying all of this stuff about how the fact that the lower ranks in libraries were dominated by women is what ruined, essentially ruined the field, which is hilarious if it weren't so depressing because when you look at the stuff like things were engineered to basically like you were saying keep women in their box or in their lane keep people from advancing up the ranks and so if you establish a system where the only people who are in those higher ranked positions are like clearly born to be there and they happen to be men well how how can you break that that bookish ceiling. I mean, you really can't. Yeah. I mean, it's also such an ironic contrast of the lofty mission of, you know, those top library administrators of considering themselves really the arbiters of culture and learning and virtue for mm-hmm. all of these communities and these developing urban centers. But at the same time, keeping women's work in the field devalued. Yeah. And it's also worth noting, if we jump forward in our timeline, that in 1930, a 78-year-old Dewey settled for $2,000 a sexual harassment lawsuit brought against him. And of course, again, we don't have the term sexual harassment yet, which should tell you something even more, that before people were literally and legally protected from issues of sexual harassment, a woman sued him for his behavior. 
Which is why I suggested to Caroline that the Dewey Decimal System should be renamed <laughs> to what? I'm not sure, but listeners, I am open to suggestions <laughs> um, because there's so many amazing women librarians that you could uh, name it after. But of course, I mean, that's never going to happen. But yeah. um, because we're only just now really acknowledging the fact that Dewey in his personal life was kind of a shady dude. Not kind of. He was a shady dude. He was a shady dude. Um, But... In that regard, I really am interested to hear from our librarian listeners. I know you guys have a lot to tell us about Dewey. And so I'm interested to hear, like, do you do you feel a degree of conflict when you look at him as the father of librarianship who was also shady in the shed? Yeah, I mean, because that is the thing that uh, his profiler, Joshua Kendall, in that ALA magazine piece was kind of wavering between like the acknowledgement of like, okay, yeah, he was a quote serial hugger and kisser, but he was so brilliant. And he, you know, gave us this thing, which did revolutionize our learning, our public learning. Yeah. I mean, Steve Jobs was also a creep, but we all have iPhones, you know, I mean, (laughs) yeah, it's like, do, do, do the ends justify the sexually harassing means? Yeah. And I mean, I'm not saying that Steve Jobs is a harasser. I don't know about that. I just know that he was incredibly difficult. Right. And, yeah. and, and, uh, tem- tempestuous. Well, yeah, they seem to have similar temperaments for yeah. sure. Um, but quickly in terms of men and librarian stereotypes, because it was so feminized so quickly, by the time you get into the 20th century, you get the stereotype of male librarians having to be gay because how could a straight guy want to do, quote unquote, women's work? Yeah. And it seems like from more recent research that the stereotype has fallen away mm-hmm. and that uh, men don't feel you know uncomfortable being librarians because they worry that people might assume that they're gay like they might have in, say, like 1950 or 60. Um, but in terms of that administrative hierarchy, after World War II, there was, I think from the American Library Association, a recruitment effort specifically for men to get more men in libraries, but not as clerks or assistants, but into administrative roles. Make libraries great again. Yeah. So it just it just kept on going. Mm. So with this, we're going to close the book on dudes and librarians. Dudes and Dewey. <laughs> Dewey dudes. <laughs> um, and librarians, we absolutely want to hear from you about this and male librarians listening we want you to weigh in too we want everyone to weigh in um and also quickly thank you librarians like teachers i feel like they're always so undervalued in our communities but indispensable so momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address you can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us on facebook and we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now So I have a letter here from Ella in response to our Boston Marriages episode. She says, I think Boston marriages may be more common than we think among young people. I'm not that aunt yet, but I have every intention of being one eventually. My roommate, that's her quotes and my ridiculous way of speaking, my quote unquote roommate and I are both in our 20s. We share a bed and a dog and often describe each other as our girlfriend or partner to explain why we have no interest in dating other people. But 
Neither of us is into ladies. We're just uninterested in traditional romantic entanglements. I'm asexual, and she's a lapsed straight person who's disillusioned with men. And we save an awful lot on rent by sharing a bedroom and a wardrobe. I've never seen a reason why I would want to stop living with a roommate, even if I could afford it. Other than that's what's expected of me. It's a sleepover every day, and my ten-year-old self is really and truly living the dream. Thanks for the awesome episode. I never knew what to call what we do before, and it's genuinely a great relief to have a label to apply to myself other than just weird. <laughs> and if I ever marry her for tax reasons, the invitation is absolutely going to read: "Please join us in celebrating our Boston marriage." And everyone but you and me will just think it's a weird reference to the fact that we lived in Boston for a while. You're totally invited. <laughs> well, thank you, Ella, for that great story. So I have a letter here from Francis, also about our Boston marriages episode. And Francis writes, "I grew up in the Bible Belt and never knew that lesbian couplings were so accepted. I don't have a personal experience with a Boston marriage, but whatever the male equivalent is, I do. My grandfather was originally a New Englander, but after marrying my grandmother, they moved to North Carolina, where my mother was born, and I spent most of my life." I didn't know anything about same-sex couplings, and growing up in the 80s and 90s, we frequently visited confirmed bachelor friends of my grandfather's. Not until many years later did I realize those men were actually long-term monogamous gay men. My parents are extremely against homosexuality, but to hear my mother lovingly speak of these men is interesting. I think a lot of our society's issues come from not understanding the humanity of people who are different than us, and refusing to know them as individuals with feelings and personalities. All that said, is there a term for men in Boston marriages? I'd be interested to know. Love the podcast, and now I force my husband to listen. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Francis.、Um, I think that we could call male Boston marriages. What like、um, maybe like a Philly marriage? Key,、no, Key West marriages. Key West marriages. Yeah, what's a really like dudely city? San Antonio marriages. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, keep your letters coming. Momstuff at howstuffworks dot com is our email address, and for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources. So you too can learn about Melville Dewey. Head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 